While I love that word, the motherland, <laughs> since Mr. Wong on Saturday afternoon at immigration, after trying to understand all the visas I had in my passport, said, you should have become American citizen. <laughs> well, I do bring you greetings from the land of the MacArthur's, where, uh, unbeknown to yourself, you are much loved um, and, in God's grace, uh, esteemed and admired among the brethren and among the people. Um, I remember reading in the works of John Chrysostom, who was, if you don't know, the John MacArthur of Antioch and Constantinople in the days of the early fathers. And in one of his books on preaching, he says, it's actually very difficult to be a great preacher. And it arrested me because I suppose, like the rest of us, you feel you look at someone who is a great preacher and you assume it must be easier for him. And Chrysostom makes the very important point that when you have fed people so well, so long, and that ministry has created such expectation, the burden of so many people looking to your ministry is an enormous burden to bear. And speaking personally, Dr. MacArthur, and uh, on behalf of many friends you do not know, I am so grateful that you have borne that burden so well. I know this is not the John MacArthur Memorial Conference, <laughs> but always for memorial services, when I've heard that a saint has gone to be with the Lord, um, my first thought is, what passage of Scripture comes to mind when I think of them? What can I use in Scripture to help to explain to non-Christians what made this person what he was. And in terms of ministry, uh, my mind in connection with you goes to 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, and this is the point, I worked harder than any of them, the super apostles. I worked harder though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And uh, I thank God for that grace in your life, for the way through your life grace uh, to you has come to others in the preaching of the gospel, and especially uh, because our callings are entirely in the hands of our providence-ruling God. I'm grateful for the example of faithfulness uh, not only in ministry, but in, in Christian living, in holiness of life, that we have all seen in you. And I pray God's blessing on your continued life and family and ministry. Which brings me, naturally enough, to the theme of this session, which is faithfulness in holiness of life, in the life of the gospel minister. And I want to draw your attention this afternoon to the 12th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, 
very familiar words. I'll read the first two verses, but I want us to be thinking together about the whole of this chapter, uh, which may not be a chapter to which we would instinctively be drawn when we think about sanctification and holiness, but as we'll see, is in many ways a wonderfully comprehensive exposition of what holiness means, not least in the life of the gospel minister. And while clearly this letter, as the author says at the end of chapter 13, is, is written to all of the brethren, I want us to think about it in particular by way of application to ourselves as brethren, that is to say, those who are called to be ministers of the gospel and pastors under shepherds of the flock of God. And so, the author writes, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The whole of the letter to the Hebrews is about remaining faithful from beginning to end. But running through it also in the terms of that faithfulness is a very considerable stress on holiness, on holiness. Uh, those of you who have been decades in gospel ministry know that words in the Christian culture become big and significant and then for a variety of reasons seem to go out of common use. Many of us will remember that uh, discipleship, that being willing to go anywhere and do anything at the command of the Lord Jesus was written into the definition of what it means to be a Christian. When sacrifice was a word that we heard frequently, and satisfaction very rarely, and when holiness of life was important and supremely important in those who would become gospel ministers. And sometimes, as you observe the Christian scene in our times, you are almost surely going to draw the conclusion that holiness has lost its position in the vocabulary of gospel ministers. Success or satisfaction has demoted holiness from its rightful place in the pantheon of biblical words describing what it means to be a minister of the gospel. And certainly as we apply a passage like Hebrews chapter 12, one of the things that becomes very evident is that lack of holiness is the chief disqualification from pastoral ministry. And it's this in particular that I want us to be thinking about together, because this whole letter that emphasizes faithfulness, 
those many exhortations about drawing back, about failing to come to the grace of God, the famous warning passages that punctuate the letter, are all related to this underlying theme that what Jesus Christ has died to accomplish for us is a holiness that will be imputed to us, and a holiness that will be wrought in us. And these two, as in fact was just said on the screen, although they are inseparable, are distinguishable. And yet, though distinguishable in the Christian believer and in the necessity of God's call, need to be inseparable in the life of the Christian pastor. And so, from the beginning, the author of Hebrews is warning us about the danger of drifting away, chapter 2, verse 1, and again in chapter 3, verse 6, of holding fast our confidence and not losing our hope, and in chapter 6, verse 1, about going on to maturity and not drifting back, and in chapter 10 and verse 23, the same principle, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering because He who called us is faithful. That is to say, the way the grammar of the gospel works is that those to whom God is faithful become faithful. And one of the areas in which they become supremely faithful is this area of holiness. And the author has made this point from the beginning. He, he introduces our Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a threefold description right at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. He is the revelation of the radiant glory of God. He is the creator and the heir of the cosmos. But he is also thirdly, and here the focus of the epistle begins, he is also the one, we are told here, who made purification for sins. And so this idea that will be played out through the letter in terms of the superiority of Jesus Christ's priesthood to all old covenant priesthood has in view that priesthood exists in order that holiness may be affected. This was the function of the Old Testament priest. This is why holiness is written all over his ministry, that both in sacrifice and in intercession, and also as it happens in the Old Testament Scriptures, in instruction, because he is to guard knowledge with his lips. The focus of the Aaronic priesthood is on the affecting of holiness. But throughout the epistle, we keep hearing this echo that the Aaronic priesthood was inadequate to effect real holiness. And so, for example, when you come to uh, those many saints who experienced the days of the Aaronic priesthood, the emphasis is that they look for that which the Mosaic covenant could not effect. 
just as Moses himself said, would that all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit, recognizing that His covenant could not supply what His covenant foreshadowed. In precisely the same way, the Aaronic priesthood is there to effect holiness and sanctification, but it cannot effect that which it holds out apart from looking beyond that covenant to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so, we understand that when Christ exercises His priestly ministry, His priestly ministry focuses on effecting holiness, a holiness imputed to us, but an imputed holiness that is inseparable from an imparted holiness. And it does this in a way that's very reminiscent of the way in which the Apostle Paul thinks. And so, for example, in chapter 10, verse 10, the author emphasizes that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But then a few verses later on, goes on to speak about the way in which, verse 14, by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this, of course, is the, is the very mindset that we find in Paul's letters, the way in which he emphasizes again and again by the tenses he uses that sanctification is an accomplished reality in our lives, because in union with Christ we have died to the dominion of sin and we have been raised into newness of life. We are therefore characteristically by the Apostle Paul called saints or holy ones. This is not something to which we aspire. This is who we are separated, reserved for Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, there is not only this radical sanctifying of believers, but there is an ongoing sanctifying of believers. There is a definitive sanctification and there is a progressive sanctification until at last that sanctification as it were, flowers into a glorification in which we who have been reserved exclusively for Jesus Christ, having gazed into His face, having looked to Jesus, become like the Jesus to whom we have looked. And we shall be like Him when we see Him as He is. And this great structure then plays out in everything that the author of Hebrews has to say to us about the life of holiness, and therefore it has a very special application to us as ministers of the gospel. This great therefore in Hebrews 12.1 is a therefore that needs to be applied to you in your ministry. It's true in your ministry that you should desire to be holy, 
that you should desire, like Murray McChain, to be as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. Don't you think that many of our churches would be in a different spiritual condition if those words were prayed by gospel ministers and began to be effected in gospel ministers? And I say that because it has become such a rare thing to hear a minister of the gospel being described as holy, as though it would be an embarrassment to be so radically different from the world as to be thought holy. And so, let's give some attention to a number of things in which I think we can learn much about gospel ministry. And the first is this, obviously, the absolute necessity of holiness in gospel ministers. You notice what he says here in chapter 12 and verse 10 as we apply this to ourselves. The disciplines that the Father engages in our lives are for our good that we may share in His holiness. And then stunningly in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If one, if one can put that bluntly, no matter how great your gifts are in ministry, no matter how well you are thought of in ministry, without holiness you will never see the Lord. And the truth of you will be what he says in verse 15, that you will have failed to obtain the grace of God. He's not speaking about those who have received the grace of God and lost the grace of God. He is speaking about those who never actually obtained, attained, received the grace of God. And it is such a sobering word because you can sense the echo of the knowledge of Jesus' teaching running throughout the epistle to the Hebrews in the recognition that someone may have unusual gifts and yet still be a stranger to grace. It's one of the things that's happening in chapter 6, isn't it? Words that that uh, have sometimes puzzled Christians because we tend to associate great experiences with the possession of great grace. And he's making a radical distinction between the two. Just as our Lord Jesus, you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, makes His own stunning distinction between the two, that it's possible to be able to cast out demons in Jesus' name and yet to have fallen short, never to have attained to the grace of God. And as Dr. MacArthur was saying earlier on today, we live in these strange times when we see people sometimes unusually gifted, falling so disappointingly. And part of the reason is because they have confused natural gifts with saving grace. 
And we need to take this to heart. This is an application for all believers, but we need to take it to heart for ourselves. Some of you will have seen or read a little booklet that was published, I think, in the 1970s, uh, written by a man called Ernie Riesinger, entitled, What Shall We Think of the Carnal Christian? I was shown that manuscript uh, sometime in the 1970s, and uh, the man who showed it to me said, well, what do you think of it? I said, surely nobody believes that stuff anymore. Do you know what he said? Wait till you go to the United States of America. And all of us in this room, I guess, are familiar with that teaching which is out there and properly to be condemned. But you know, we each have our own forms of it, don't we? Uh, substituting something else for real sanctification. And when it comes to ourselves as ministers, we, we tend to argue in this way. Uh, because, because we see effectiveness in the gifts that we have, that, that this is an indication to us that we have really grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there is a voice, as it were, inwardly from the Word of God through the Spirit of God that seems to raise its hand and say, let us pause for a minute and let's examine where you really are. John Owen has a particularly striking word to say about this. He says, they are much mistaken in the Lord Christ who hope to see Him hereafter in glory and live and die here in an unholy state. It is not privileges, nor gifts, nor church office or power that will give admission to that state. If it's true my brothers, that without holiness no one will see the Lord. It is true by logical implication that no minister of the gospel without evident holiness will ever see the Lord. So, there is an absolute necessity of holiness in gospel ministers. Second, I want to draw your attention to six particular areas of battle, struggle for holiness, that are vital in gospel ministers. You're familiar with the language that the author uses here. Uh, we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's a picture from the games, perhaps even from the Olympic games. Um, I'm not inclined to spend two hours watching the marathon when the Olympic Games come round every four years or so, but I do occasionally like to look in on the weightlifters. I see these massive men coming on, massive women as well, and rubbing the chalk onto their hands and, and lifting up those, you know, it's like they're lifting up three heavy men, and their, and their, their knees are buckling, and their, their whole body is shuddering, and then they get the things up, and presumably a green light goes on somewhere, and then they release the thing, it comes down absolutely clattering. How are they able to do that? Because they have hupomene, which is the word he uses, isn't it? 
They have the ability to stand, remain under the stress. When I was a very young Christian, I, I must have read the words before, but I must have been reading in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, and I came across those words of Paul where he has spoken about the Christian warfare and armor, and then he says, having done all to remain standing. You know, and those were, those were days when we had our own version of your best life now, life with a capital L, Christian life is victory, by which I was surrounded although not convinced. And I remember a sense of emotional disappointment and letdown. Is that all there is, that you remain standing? Now, 57 years later, I'm kind of astonished I'm still standing. And this is, this is what he, he wants us to grasp here, that going on, that remaining faithful is not some marvelous triumph. It's, it's being able to stand underneath the pressures that in and of themselves would crush us. And I want us to look at some of those pressures some of those ways in which different ones of us in different ways need to battle for holiness in our lives. If he makes a distinction between the, the weights and the sin which clings so closely, as I think most commentators suggest, then he's obviously thinking, first of all, about practices that may not be sinful but will not advance gospel in our lives, practices that may interest us but divert us. You don't, uh, you don't go to the starting line wearing a heavy coat, not because there's anything sinful about wearing a heavy coat, but you're not going to, you're not going to win the race wearing a heavy coat. You're not going to win the race as a pastor so long as there is a thought in your life in which you are saying, well, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, you have people in your congregation who say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And, and you know what to say to them. You say, that's, that's, that's almost an irrelevant question at the moment. There are other questions. I take it for granted there may be nothing wrong with it, but does it edify you? What is there something that that is actually enslaving you. A number of years ago, I was in a church. The church was looking for, to add to the associate ministers. The, the, the committee that was searching for another minister had identified a candidate, and then the chairman of that committee came to see me, and he said, I think we've got a problem here. Oh, I said, what is it? He said, I've downloaded this man's Twitter account. The the chairman was a lawyer, and I've analyzed 3,000 of his tweets, and I've noticed a pattern of interest. The interest itself is not sinful, but the pattern concerns me. What are we going to do? And I said to him, you know, 
there are only two people in the universe know this about this man. You're one, and now I'm the second. He doesn't know this about himself. He doesn't know that he has actually come to enslave himself to something that he might discuss with his friends and say, I have Christian liberty on this. And it's it's such an illustration, isn't it, of the subtlety of the way in which things that may be legitimate actually end up becoming snares for us in gospel ministry. So that as Paul says, if you're a soldier, you do not engage in civilian pursuits. You become a kind of monomaniac. This one thing I do no matter what others may think about me. And then, of course, he adds to this not only practices that in the end of the day may hamper us, but sin that clings to us. And there is a kind of super glue, isn't there, about sin, the way it weaves itself into our Well, you see, it weaves itself into our personalities. Uh, It it seeps into our spiritual pores, and it clings. Um, It clings like like some subtle animal that will not let us go. And uh, we disguise it in so many different ways or we end up justifying ourselves in this way or another. You know Owen's words again, excuse me citing him twice in the same message, let not that man think he makes any true progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. And there is only one solvent for that superglue of sin. That solvent is the blood of Christ. And one of the early fathers says, you know, if, if someone gave to you a, a bowl in, in which there was the blood of Jesus Christ, how carefully you would carry that bowl. And uh, the thing is, we don't do that with the blood of Jesus Christ, do we? It's not enough to preach about the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. The cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ needs so to be applied to my soul that increasingly I find that that superglue of sin is being dissolved by gospel power. And my friends, when we see that dissolution take place, what we will inevitably discover is that there's another layer of the superglue underneath, and it's going to be like this all the way home. It's never going to cease. Always the application of the blood of Christ in order to deliver us from the the clinging of internal remaining sin, and then the Spirit illumining our hearts to see that the gospel has not yet gone down as far as it is yet to go, so layer upon layer upon layer. 
until there may be times when we can scarcely bear how deep down the gospel needs to go. But if our prayer is, oh Lord, make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be, then I will find the excruciating, and I use the word wisely, the excruciating pain of the application of the death of Christ to my soul to bring an exhilarating liberation to my life and transformation. But there's a third area here. There are practices that can hamper us. There is sin that clings to us. In verses 3 and 4, and then later on, there are compromises to which the stresses of ministry may tempt us. Now, I recognize he is speaking to Christian believers in general, but I think this applies in a very special way to us as gospel ministers. He's pointing to the way in which the gospel minister endured hostility so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted in our struggle against sin. And he goes on to speak later on in verses 12 through 14 about our weakness in the fight and, and uh, even the difficulty of living at peace with others and the fact that holiness is actually a grim battle in the Christian life. And you see that battle can exhaust us. Um, I'm fascinated by, uh, I occasionally watch Wimbledon. I don't like watching it, but I occasionally watch it. And one of the things that fascinates me about these, these enormously great tennis stars, the Federers and the Djokovic's and, and even the Andy Murray's of this world, is that they will, they will play somebody who's ranked number 98 in the world, and that fellow will win the first set, maybe in a tie-break. And of course, all the commentators, is there going to be an upset here? And then Federer wins, 6-7, love. How did that happen? Because Federer exhausted the resources of his opponent in the first set. And forgive me, those of you who are Federer fans, saying that's exactly what the devil does. <laughs> he has been doing this for millennia. He may, as I think it's William Bates says, he will tell you 99 things that are true to set you up for the hundredth. And he will allow you to win the first set in order to exhaust you in the struggle against his wiles. And this is what he's speaking about here. And what, does it, what is it likely to produce in me? It's likely to produce in me compromise. It's exactly what Paul is speaking about in 2 Corinthians 4. It's hard going. And it's exhausting me, Lord, to be faithful to you. And then there are all the voices, aren't there, that tempt us to unholiness of thought, unholiness of 
the way in which we engage in ministry, a certain lack of holiness in, in how, how we lead our churches. Uh, and it's very significant in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul twice says we don't lose heart. And I take that to be an indication that he was a man who knew what it was to come very close to losing heart because the pressures were so immense on him. And you know that's language used outside of the New Testament of the struggles of a woman in labor when she feels she just, she, she no longer has the resources to go on. And you see, we're being advised here by this pastor, whoever this pastor was, that those are very crucial days in our lives. We, we need to understand the stratagems of the evil one. We say too lightly we are not ignorant of his devices, but we, we go through our Christian life as though we were ignorant of his devices. And so, when we are crushed, when we are pressed in our ministries, that's, that's exactly the time that we need to have our antennae up, our eyes open to understand that what the evil one is out to destroy is our pursuit of holiness, our faithfulness to the Lord. And then there is a, a fourth area in which we sometimes have to battle, and that's what he turns to in verses 5 to 11. When we find ourselves struggling with and even struggling against divine providences, and he has this marvelous section about the, the pain of the, the the discipline that we experience in the providences of God, how sore it can be. And the Psalms are full of this kind of thing. The story of the Christian church is full of this kind of thing. I've sometimes wondered, looking at my friends, can it be true that gospel ministers tend to experience more painful providences than the generality of Christians? And, and we struggle. We find it difficult. And we find it difficult for two reasons. One is because they're sore, but the other is because they're humbling. Ernest Kevin, whose name some of you will know, who was principal of the London Bible College, a friend of Dr. Lloyd-Jones, apparently used to say to his students, gentlemen, those were days when Theology students were called gentlemen. Gentlemen, there are two great sins in the ministry. One is laziness, and that's for sure. The other is pride. You sometimes wonder why it is that you want to die in the pulpit rather than go to the church door. None of you ever experienced that dying in the pulpit? Why do you die in the pulpit? Why do you so often feel that you have been an unclean vessel? Because there's a very simple principle in ministry, that if God is going to deal with them through you, He wants, first of all, to deal with you so that He can get through to them. You are the one who is most under your ministry of the Word. 
And it can be sore. The, the congregation has no idea this is going on, that you are dying because even as you preach, you feel unclean. You feel the Word penetrating your own soul. You are sitting under it. And the Lord is disciplining you. Or better, He is child training you. It's, it's absolutely marvelous. But often we, we fight against it because we we lose sight of two things. One is the Father's hand, and the other that we are His sons. And if this is our Father's hand, we can trust Him absolutely. And if we are His sons, we know that He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, is with Him giving us everything we need to lead us to glory. And then there's something else in verse 15, the danger of a root of bitterness that can poison us. It's a quotation, isn't it, of an expression from Deuteronomy 29, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. My brothers, that is precisely the recipe that has produced ministerial downfall. I'll be okay. And it comes out in many different ways. This this stubborn root in our souls that is a stubborn root of essentially rebellion against the providences of God in our own life that often emerges in a… actually it emerges sometimes I've seen in a bitterness towards others. I've often thought it is one of the, the, the most alarming danger signs in a minister of the gospel that whenever he speaks about somebody else, especially if it's somebody else who, has, who is in a bigger church or appears to have had more fruit or even expresses more grace, the first thing they think of saying is always negative. And it always emerges with a kind of, of bitterness. That goes very, very, very deep down into some souls. It's there in all our souls, but it goes deep down into some souls. And we need this, we need this cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus Christ to be constantly poured over us and over us and over us and over us and over us again to not only to dilute that poison, but actually ultimately to counteract it and to transform it into sweetness. That hymn we were singing, um, which goes back to the, the, the days of Calvin in Geneva, and I'm pretty convinced whoever wrote it either was Calvin or knew Calvin really well, because there's that verse in it where, where the writer looks to Jesus Christ and says, you have the perfect gentleness no bitterness hast thou. 
That was one of Calvin's great inward struggles, incidentally. But you see what he was doing, or whoever was doing it, was taking all my bitterness to the sweetness of Jesus Christ in order that my bitterness might be diluted and then ultimately cleansed. And perhaps it's not insignificant that the sixth of these areas of struggle is the area of short-term gratification and especially in the area of sexual immorality. In chapter 12, verse 16, make sure that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Brethren, you've all had people in your office or in your home with their head in their hands, and they're saying, I don't know what I was thinking. And you know that all they were thinking about was short-term gratification. And it's as though the devil says, it, it will be okay. And then momentarily he comes round and says, I'm sorry, it wasn't okay. And the blinders come off, and a life and a ministry ruined for short-term gratification. This is why that great sermon, it is actually a great sermon, but it's a sermon with an even better title than it was a sermon of Thomas Chalmers in the 19th century, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Only the expulsive power of a new affection for the long-term pleasures of the glory of God and fellowship with Jesus Christ are enough to begin to destroy this insatiable desire that's ours because we are sinners for short-term gratification. So, how do we fare? Practices that hamper us, sin that clings to us, compromise that stresses us, bitterness that poisons us, sexual immorality that can destroy us. But I want, you to point, want to point you to a third area here that is, well, it's so, it's so gospel, isn't it? That there is this teaching that, that analyzes our spiritual condition, but then brings to that spiritual condition encouragements to holiness and gospel ministers, the necessity of holiness and gospel ministers, the struggles for holiness and gospel ministers, and the encouragements to holiness in gospel ministers. What are they? Well, he begins the chapter, doesn't he, with this marvelous picture, uh, as it were, uh, getting all these saints in, in Hebrews chapter 11 into the, into the, either into the gallery or into the witness box. I think actually the witness box. You are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. They may well be watching you, but I don't think that's his point. I think the point he's making is just remember the story of God's faithfulness throughout the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures from Abel onwards, and be encouraged 
that He has written large in the lives of these ancient saints, the pattern of His working that He is going to use also in your life too. And be encouraged to keep on running, to keep on enduring, not to drift. That's what the Old Testament is for. It's there to say, keep going. You've got what we never saw, so keep going. But then there's another encouragement, and he's already hinted at that. I've already hinted at that, and that is I have a heavenly Father who is child-training me as His Son in order that I may share His holiness. It's His passion. He wants to make us in His own image, remake us in His likeness, and everything He does, He does in order to effect that in your life, which is why He puts us, verse 11, into the gymnasium of the soul, because He's a Father disciplining you. And you you see the point of this, that if we do not understand that the very essence of the relationship, the fellowship into which our Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit brings us is to enable us to say, Abba, Father, if that instinct is not in us, then unpleasant discipline will never ultimately be profitable for us. It's only when we, are, when we are in Christ brought to say, Abba, this is your work in me. You're making me like your son. This is your predestining purposes, that I might be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why is that so important in the Scriptures? It's so important in the Scriptures because nothing in you and me that is unlike the Lord Jesus will ever be able to survive the glory of God. And the wonderful thing is that He's doing it already. He's making you more and more like the Lord Jesus. My brothers, that's such a key to ministry, isn't it? That's something to pray for ourselves, to pray for one another. But people will see pastors who are becoming like the Lord Jesus. Because you see, they do, they, the, the great mystery to me is that when the Holy Spirit enlarges us, especially in preaching, and your mind races, and your hands go, and your voice raises, and the thoughts flow, why is it that He doesn't hide my faults and my failures? Because He wants to use clay pots. But you see, in a sense, if I can use this language, you see the risk that God is taking? Because my observation is that most people in most congregations think that God must be something like the person through whom His Word comes. That's how they think about what holiness means. It's being like that man. That's why it's so vital that you pursue holiness, that you're faithful in that pursuit of holiness, 
Because holiness at the end of the day is just being like Jesus. And the more you are like Jesus in your ministry, the more there will be real integrity between the Word that you preach and the atmosphere and spirit and love and devotion in which you preach it, whether it be to cut up the souls of men or to point them to Jesus Christ. And you know, at the end of the day, this is a great encouragement to us that this is what He wants to do. But there's a third encouragement, and it's this, that we now enjoy what these saints of old did not enjoy. We enjoy new covenant access to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. We have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and so on in verse 18, but we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When does that happen, incidentally? Well, according to the teaching of the author of Hebrews, it happens when we worship I actually think that's the reason Paul was concerned about the angels in 1 Corinthians, because he believed that when the Corinthians went to church, they went to a church where angels were present, where Jesus is the worship leader, where Jesus is the preacher, and we hear His voice. And since this is the high privilege of those of us who are gospel ministers, in a very special way, this is one of our chief encouragements that we are able to go into the presence of God with His people and worship Him, and that Jesus will preach His Word to our people through our lips. And if that does not make you want to be as holy as you can possibly be for these people, my friend, it's probably time to go and do something else. Because, of course, the greatest encouragement of all, and in a way the central key to the whole thing, is, as he says in verse 2, that we are looking away to Jesus, that He fills our horizon. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He's entered into the joy that was set before Him. He's set down at the right hand of the throne on high, and He is also the author and the finisher of our faith. And if there is a key to ministerial faithfulness, it's constantly looking to Jesus. My spiritual mentor was a man called William Still, who served the same congregation for, I think, 52 or 53 years. And when I was a student, he said to me one day, Sinclair, he said, I want to say something to you, and it's this. I want to urge you to keep a sanctuary in your heart for the Lord Jesus, into which nothing and nobody 
have our enters. Even Dorothy, the girl I would marry, exclusively for the Lord Jesus. And these are days in which we can be brought back to that and close the door to everything else. Years ago, a friend, possibly the, the, the most brilliant person in a congregation I served, I think by no, by no stretch of the imagination, uh, outdone by anyone who'd given her life to the mutation of the herpes virus, her whole life, professor in the University of Microbiology. And as a result of her research to which she'd given her life, the government had given her permission to have surgeons inject whatever it was she had created into inoperable brain tumors in people who were destined to die within a matter of weeks. And I saw a documentary about her on television and uh, these people walking around whose lives she had saved by the devotion of her life. And I, I happened to see her to speak to in church the next weekend. I said, it, it was, I, I loved seeing that on television and the honor done to you. It must be so gratifying to see the fruit of your labors. And we'd known each other 35 years, and she, she pointed her professorial finger at me, and she said, you know, what I do isn't really all that important. What you do, that's really important. Brothers, if we do something that is really important, then let's give ourselves entirely to the Lord Jesus even again more and more today, and more and more as the Word is expounded to us in this conference, until we truly are able to say, all for Jesus, all my ransom powers for Him, use me, Lord. Keep me faithful in this ministry. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for what it means to us as brothers to feel that we are sitting underneath Your own Word, taught not by the lips of men, but by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for one another that we may all remain faithful. We pray for brethren who struggle that You will give them strength. We ask that the Lord Jesus may be the love of our hearts and the passion of our lives and that through our ministries His name and praise may spread to the ends of the earth and for all eternity. And we ask it in His name. Amen.